Hi, my name is Brian Landau. And I'm Eric Hurd. And you're with The Other 21, a show about how top media, entertainment, and sports brands win in the 21 hours of the day when the live event is not happening. Today, we're joined by Ryan Schramm. Ryan is president and COO of Isaiah, a leader in the influencer marketing industry. Ryan is responsible for the company's overall operational environment, including the company's client development, client service, marketing communications, human capital, and creator ecosystem organizations. He also leads the company's corporate business development growth strategy domestically and abroad. Ryan was appointed to Isaiah's board of directors in November 2012. Ryan served as group vice president at Merkle, formerly Hello World and ePrize. Before Merkle, he held roles of increasing responsibility at CBS Westwood One and iHeartMedia. Ryan holds a bachelor's degree in management from the Eli Broad College of Business at Michigan State University. Hopefully we won't talk about college realignment today. He also serves as founding partner of the Influence United Global Alliance, developed on behalf of IZEA and its charter members around the world. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Guys, great to be here with you. Thanks for the invite. So let's just sort of jump in at a very high level and ask you to define influencer marketing. It is now a table stakes marketing initiative on behalf of brands and talent, but it can be a little bit murky, I think, for a lot of people because you can get Lionel Messi or LeBron James to do a sponsored post for you. I don't know that they're influencers. They're obviously very influential, but they're iconic sports figures. Jake Paul, who is an influencer, is actually a pretty good boxer and is doing a lot for that sport. Who would have thought, right? There's people like me who don't have much following, but have a credibility amongst my friends. And if I did a sponsored post on behalf of a brand, I might be able to sell some products. So help us map this universe within the context of sports and entertainment, if you might. I mean, Brian, you're, you're hitting at the, the the key of why people get confused, but also inspired by the creator economy today in 2023, because everything that you described is influencer marketing, and it's even more than that today. Uh, When I first started here, the term didn't exist for a weird period of time. It was called social media sponsorship. And then for some unknown reason in 2012-ish, it was called native advertising for a hot second. And then the influencer marketing term arose. And frankly, the word influencer itself, for all the reasons that you described in the context of athletes, can be both polarizing and inspiring as well, right? So how I look at it is... The modern democratization of content creation and distribution by anyone who can be an A-list celebrity or athlete, all the way down to your next door neighbor or cousin, and everywhere in between. It is truly platform agnostic. It is content agnostic in the sense that you're seeing people create like we are today in an audio format, just like you can video, just like you can written word. And frankly, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, when you jump ahead, the who is creating that content is an equally interesting conversation that we'll get into, whether it is you know generative AI or uh, where that content is being created in virtual worlds via Web3. That is, for us here at Isaiah, what gets us kicking off the sheets in the morning and thinking about all the possibilities of the creator economy, but also for marketers, all the practicalities of the value that it creates in the meantime. You just said that it's channel agnostic and maybe it it could, could even be creator agnostic. It might not even be a real creator creating the content. 
But it feels like there are three component parts to a successful influencer campaign. You do have the influencer, you have the style of content that they create, and then you have their primary channel of distribution, right? There are TikTokers, there are YouTubers, there's some crossover, of course, but someone sort of owns a channel, if you will. Where should people start when building a campaign? Is there an order of operations here? What is the playbook that you might offer to a marketer who's sitting there saying like, I need to be on TikTok. Do I really? Uh, But I really need the person to look and feel like this when they are creating that content. Do they really? What's your guidance here? I think the first step, and this may sound overly basic, but it's important to emphasize because it is unfortunately often overlooked. It is what are you trying to get to have happen as a result of an investment in the creator economy in influencer marketing? What are those KPIs? And I would tell you that this is both the blessing and the curse of the space, Brian, in the sense that in the lens of, say, a PR executive, engagement, impressions, perhaps even brand building or audience swaying are all things that influencer marketing is very adept at doing. That's a wildly different set of KPIs from, hey, I'm looking for app downloads. I'm a gaming company and I'm trying to drive that in the app store or on Google Play, or I am a a sports organization and I need butts in the seats, right? And we have some soft attendance and I'm trying to build advocates to get people back into the bleachers. And oftentimes I think that the excitement level the shiny coinism, if you will, around certain creators or certain platforms or both has marketers jumping over the what kind of outcome do we want from this? The next part is you know, creators are, of course, at the heart of everything that we do at Isaiah and what the industry advocates for. And that's a positive thing. But there also needs to be the recognition that a creator's audience, both demographically, psychographically and location-wise, may not necessarily be the same as the creator themselves. And so thinking about the audience that those creators are reaching, whether they are a micro and nano influencer like you and me, for example, or uh, an A-list celebrity analyzing who you're actually going to be reaching and engaging once that content is created so skillfully by an influencer is the secondary part. The third and most important part of the ingredient though And this is where consumers are so much wiser than marketers sometimes give them credit for, is letting the authenticity and the storytelling really come through in the content creation process. Yes, brand safety is so important, but the the burden that many B-school graduate marketers tend to face is that they don't understand that by really allowing a creator, an influencer to be an extension of your brand voice and not be adherent to every syllable of the brand Bible is the magic inside the creator economy. And letting that go free within an amount of reason is something that consumers pick up on inherently and is something that can actually start to adversely impact the success of a campaign. That's a huge point. Authenticity which I think is really like one way to put that last sentence into like one word is really, it's really fucking hard to come by, especially when you're a big brand and you're spending all these budgets trying to activate that brand. And like, how, how can you be authentic when you're just a, you know, a big retail marketing brand? 
And as I look at it, and I've spent my my career in sports and entertainment and advising all kinds of companies, there's really like two or three that I at least I've worked with or work with that like have nailed it. Like they get what you just said. They get how important it is to be authentic and give that right amount of freedom in voice. Would you say that if a a brand wants to engage in influencer marketing and they're too restrictive about mm-hmm. allowing those influencers to speak their minds and I, I we all get brand safety, but but let's just say they're too restrictive. Should they not partake in influencer marketing or is there a, I'm sure you deal with this all the time. Knowing thyself is one of the things that CMOs happen to be the worst at. <laughs> and so self-reflection, Eric, I, I definitely agree is something that I'd ask everyone in every brand or PR org to understand that it actually almost has nothing to do with the sector or industry. Like, look, we we serve all kinds of restricted or governed industries, be it gaming, gambling, liquor, you know, even the growing cannabis industry. Like, those are all regulated things, but those brands have committed to extending their voice to not be one to many, but many to many. I actually have a thesis that it's every bit as much as knowing thyself as a marketer, as it is the tectonic shift that's happening right now in C-suites all over the world, particularly those that are, are CMO roles, where you're seeing a generational curve of that being embraced. It also happens to coincide with CMOs becoming younger in age, more female, more diverse, that affliction of saying, no, there's only one brand voice. It needs to be this way. We can't involve others in that dialogue. That's starting to fade away as uh, that generation that advocated for that is retiring. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a really healthy thing in the ecosystem. And I, I want to be very clear to a point that you made. It isn't just saying, oh, to hell with brand safety and forget it. It's really recognizing that consumers are super sophisticated. They also have the attention span that has been measured scientifically of less than a goldfish. So the the brand safety of 10 years ago, let alone 25 or 30 years ago, just means something totally different today. And PS, it's only going to get more complicated and more fractious as we look forward. So yes, Brands have to understand themselves and have clarity around that, but they also need to understand that the consumers are probably changing exponentially faster than they are, and they may not realize it just yet. Well said. How do you see the opportunity for sports and entertainment companies? I'd argue on the sports side of it, you have most teams and leagues short of MLS. The majors, they are used to forcing bidding wars between brands. Like they're used to having fan bases they know how to reach. Like they're just playing with fun money at this point. That's landscape. Only recently have they been forced to even consider the idea of alternative forms of marketing and revenue streams, like performance marketing, like influencer marketing. How do you speak to a a team or, or an entertainment company to help them understand how to activate in the influencer community. 
Yeah, I, I hope for those that are on the team side or the lead side listening to this conversation that they're sitting up a little bit straighter because when we talk about democratization and content creation as it relates to the creator economy, I look at sports today and into the future as being democratized all over the place, Eric. And as a result of that, the tactics, the strategies by which teams and leads are going to have to uh, work within, the rules are changing, probably arguably have changed, and are going to change even more. And the embracing of different types of fans as influencers, fans as advocates, and the, the brand involvement in that dialogue, to me, is a wholly different so uh, source of non-traditional revenue, but it requires the the forethought on behalf of, of teams and leagues to really embrace those things. And it probably is going to arguably involve changing their org chart a bit also and their personnel roster inside the head offices to accommodate that. And it's not to say, don't get, don't get me wrong, it's not that I don't think that there's great innovative digital thinkers in nooks and crannies of these orgs. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. But the wholesale change will have to move from a very, we own and control the pressure, the narrative, that we're going to put people into bidding wars. That is part of the democratization that I'm referring to that's going to drive the change. And teams and leagues, in my view, have a really deliberate choice they have to make. Are they going to react to it after it starts hurting them? Or are they going to be ahead of it and lead it? And you know, before we pressed record, we were talking about how, how novel it was that you know MLS and, and Apple TV Plus struck the deal that they did. And, there, and, and there's all sorts of interesting things about that. I fast forward not too far into the future. And I say to myself, it's a very real world, whether it's Alphabet and YouTube, whether it's Apple, whether it's the closed loop content distributors and, and networks like an NBCU and Comcast. To me, the confluence of the creator economy of sports and of distribution have to run simpatico and probably will run simpatico very quickly. That relationship that you're describing, you know, focusing again on the influencer part of this, is it that the influencers are being activated during a game? Is it that they're being activated yeah. pre, post, off season? What does that tactic look like if you were sitting, if you're chief influencer officer yeah, at a sure. league, right? What does that look like for you? How are you designing that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different levels to it. I think that if you think about sub-segments of, of types of creators and then marry them into buckets of how you'd align them to a strategy, if I were at the team level, I'd be looking at, gosh, you know, another word for fans in the creator economy are advocates, meaning sort of unpaid influencers that all they want is early access to things, early access to information, perhaps, early access to events or experiences that no one else can gain access to in exchange for their social capital and their content that they're creating. In a different space, in automotive, the Ford Motor Company was really progressive at this. They realized that fans of the Mustang or fans of the Focus SVT racing vehicle, all they wanted to know was that they got to see what it would look like or what it would do before anybody else. And so the exchange of value that was happening was I'm going to hype up this launch or this reveal in exchange for me creating content about it. And Ford, you can share that content. You enjoy my audience and the story that I'm telling in my hype about that. That to me translates so cleanly 
to teams and leagues because there are all these incredible moments that you know tease you know come to arena x or stadium y for this type of thing or for this season that are just clean and, and easy to execute at scale the the next level up is the combination of broadcast or streaming and the way that content creators play a role in ad sales and frankly even the creative that runs parallel to the other ways that people are multi-streaming. Uh, one of the big moments in, in the pandemic was one of our, our retail clients took a literal Instagram story that a creator had created and made it the pre-roll on Hulu and other platforms because they couldn't get into a soundstage to shoot traditional stuff. And you start to think to yourself, whether it's linear or non-linear, whether it's live or after the fact, to me, paid influencers working with team or lead sponsors to create and, and promote content and have that content be repurposed on a multi-channel basis is a tremendously powerful idea. However, it requires a level of planning and collaboration that in my view is largely absent from the dialogue today. And if it's, and if it does exist, it's sort of a, oh, we should think about that after the deal is cemented and you're working backwards on rights and involvement. And sometimes the train's already left the station. I think third and last, I would look at the concept of ambassadorships, especially at the league level. And ambassadorships are a different type of creator relationship for any marketer and any influencer in that it's not necessarily just people who are your Tom Brady's or your Messi's or you know, A-listers. It's people who have this sustaining relationship with a team or with a league that are actually transcending the barrier of just being on social. They may make appearances on broadcast. They may come to physical things. They're creating content alongside that. You see it a lot right now, although we're currently obviously in the strike, but in Hollywood traditionally, that is a way that studios have used influencers to not just be transactional and show up at red carpets like they used to do a few years ago. They're actually advocating for different types of pillar films across the calendar year. They're coming to pre-pro meetings. They're going to awards things. They're familiar sometimes with the writers and the producers and the directors and the cast. And those equivalencies in the way that I see it can directly correlate to the sports world as well. I get the league level. Yeah. The team level feels harder to me because influencers aren't local. You can always solve for that with paid media and you can do targeted mm. paid media yes. to sort of boost that. But just because I'm a New York Giants fan doesn't mean that my followers are in the New York area. And so if I do an engagement, whether in person or on social for the Giants, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have credibility with my with my fans. I get the point of like repurpose this and use it on your own channels, right? Sure. Like that's that's very smart. Is this nuance correct? Or is it no, actually, here's this other way for local and regional sports entertainment entities to activate? I mean, certainly paid media and the precision of amplified paid media as it relates to the creator economy is important, Brian. But I also think that the gift of dare I say buzzword bingo here, machine learning and big data, is that you now can understand dynamics about any creator's audience characteristics in real time. So the, the, the right strategy may actually be you can 
target audiences who are really passionate Giants fans. But you may you may also have to examine that again, the creators identity and their fandom may not correlate to their audience you may have to work backwards and say what is the persona of the audience and i'm trying to reach giants fans it may change the way that you as the as the sports marketer select influencers select advocates select ambassadors as a result and i think that's the hardest part for people to understand with how fast this is moving is that those two things are different. And there are trade-offs that you can make depending on how you want to activate that influencer or that creator. And if there is a physicality to it in terms of going in person where being in market for that Giants game at MetLife Field uh, Stadium is important or not. I want to take a step back. You said something earlier and you mentioned a, like a reworking of the, like the org chart, a functional marketing department. How do you see it? When you when you look at a large conglomerate brand organization like a Procter & Gamble, or you look at a marketing organization like the NFL, they actually do share similar structural characteristics. And it goes a little bit like this. The brand organization, the PR, the corporate comms organization, and sometimes even the social organizations all report up into different people. They're all pillared in the organization. They may come together at the top to a chief communications officer or a CMO, sometimes directly to a CEO, especially at the team level. But in my experience, as much as you know, people like to have the kumbaya and expect that all of these folks are collaborating, most of the time they can't agree on pizza toppings, let alone an integrated marketing strategy. And so what I actually think needs to happen in a lot of orgs is a great flattening. Um, and, and you're seeing this. I, I think that during the pandemic in particular, we saw the strength of what direct-to-consumer brand organizations could do when they went back to, frankly, something that's very Don Draper-esque. It's very old school. And they behaved on an integrated marketing basis. You know, when, when you think about what happens in Mad Men, it's the same thing that would happen in old school agencies in that they were de facto centralized sources of how to create and how to distribute brand voice. So I actually think that uh, when you look at these orgs, bringing these folks together and at the very least cross-training them, but structurally cross-pollinating those various types of backgrounds and disciplines is going to be necessary, Eric. And the reason is the byproduct of the creator economy touches all of those things. So if you just take you know one post with one creator on one platform, which by the way, never happens, but let's just say we did for the sake of, of simplicity, you now have to be able to demonstrate the capability of showing how that's impacted brand engagement. That has touches to your organic social media management efforts, I'm certain at the very least. You, you own rights to that content to distribute it and repurpose it. That should inform what Brian was saying earlier, your paid strategy. It may even inform the creative of your, your native buys or the ways that you repurpose creative for pre-roll, the assets at video. It inherently has SEO value, right? If you do this enough, especially for things that are media rich, those touches are going to impact the way you rank organically on Google and Bing. And, and so 
put together, you have this integrated value delivery vehicle that may in fact, the, in, the entrance point may only be in the brand org or in the PR org. And it, at that point, it's sort of kept as the best kept secret inside that organization. And we see this over and over again with longtime clients and we're grateful for their business. But when you sit and have a drink with them or a coffee with them, the first thing you hear is, gosh, if we only could help ourselves make this work harder for ourselves, the, the annuity value would be so much greater. So are you familiar with the lean philosophy? Very much so. I've, I've only learned about it recently. And I know GE is big on it or has become big on it. But yeah, it's it's all about you know eliminating waste and removing product related misconceptions. It's about breaking down walls that whether a team owner or a lead CEO realize exist, they exist and they've existed for a long time. It's okay insofar as you can acknowledge it. Like I understand that. You know, the the corporate comms or the publicity teams, they don't see themselves necessarily on the same page as the folks building the brand or doing the social. But I have to tell you, an entire generation of up-and-coming marketers, up-and-coming marketing leaders, they weren't trained that way. They don't believe that. And by the way, consumers actually prefer the way that they bring campaigns to bear. And there's tons of evidential proof in the last five to seven years in particular that that sea change is not only needed, it's inevitable. It seems to me that if you look at the top of most marketing organizations, you know, you have the CMO at the top. Yeah. I can't back this up with data. This is just my read. Most CMOs today probably don't have a content background. Meaning like they probably were not a writer or an editor, a creator themselves. And I think when you look at things like influencer marketing, it's all about knowing your voice in content as opposed to like a traditionally educated and practiced like creative director who they're used to paid media channels Mm -hmm. and and commercial, you know, so it's a shift. Is that, do you think that's a, uh, an accurate read or am I off? No, you're, you're spot on, Eric. And, and look, I, I think the other important thing to say here is that what I'm advocating for is an and, not an or. You know, I, I, I don't ever think that traditional brand building can or should go away. I am actually instead advocating for a world that says, if we're truly integrated marketers, And we're truly thinking about and accepting the fact that these entire ecosystems are being democratized. You're actually leaving money, opportunity, and results off the table by not leaning into that as opposed to fearing it. And I think that when you when you look at the average age, you know, I'm 43 years old. The last time I saw a stat, the average age of of a chief marketing officer, at least in the United States was in their mid-60s. That is multiple generations apart by definition. You then look at the average age of the consumer that those people are trying to reach. And on a very simplistic basis, you start to understand the fissure. And I'm not trying to say all old people are irrelevant and they can't do their jobs. 
What I'm instead saying is the way that they were raised professionally, the, the corporate DNA, if you will, is very much your tried and true P&G marketer, you know, traditional brand built organizations, very division and structurally based. And it, it is it is difficult to make change happen and be an advocate for change, especially when you're trying to think about you know your career ending from a retirement perspective in a handful of years. You just can't, can't necessarily make that stuff happen overnight. So I, I do think you do find a correlation in people and in sectors that are not only fast moving and quick to embrace change, but also realize that this journey may require a time horizon that not only requires patience, but it requires an individual who has the career years to be able to execute it. We have a recurring segment on our show called Have You Heard, named after our dear friend here, Eric Heard. Eric, I'm going to start with you so that Ryan can catch his breath. Is there something happening in your industry that people either aren't talking about or they're talking about it, but you think they may be taking the wrong angle on it? Eric, I'll start with you. Have you heard? I'm going to dive into this spectrum versus Disney issue mm. for those of you who are unaware and this will probably be settled by the time anybody listens uh is charter long time second largest linear cable package wants espn to give it a little more control over its direct to consumer packaging like espn plus and who tv and 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 espn wants more money they give me, they get like nine nine dollars and something per subscriber, make one hundred and eighty two million dollars a month, and that's not good enough. And the best thing I've read all week is is how Charter CEO, forgetting first name, last name Winfrey, is basically saying, "I'm willing to take some short term pain for long term gain because this model is broken." And Bob Iger is being a good steward to the Disney brand by like trying to keep that 182 plus million dollars a month. But like he knows, he knows that Winfrey's not wrong. And I think what this all comes down to, and and this will be an inflection point, I think, in this whole cord cutting movement of this entire business is, are you the type of leader and type of company who can handle short-term pain for long-term gain? And that means giving up revenue now for more later. Or do your investors not have the stomach for that? And are you going to squeeze as much juice out of this as possible? And you'll get the short-term gain for really long-term pain. And I think Charter, I'm sure there will be a compromise that comes out of this that will be relatively short-term. But Charter wins the day, in my opinion, because of their willingness to stand up and say, this is a bad fucking business. And I've been in those shoes to a much smaller degree where this is like 10 years ago. We had a really successful business in publishing and I could see the cliff because audience consumption patterns were changing and there were a lot of reasons why we were about to go down with the ship in publishing if we didn't make a massive pivot when we did. And it was a painful decision to make. And it was a painful 
short-term pain for long-term gain, but it worked. And so I, I'm, a, I'm firmly on the charter side. I say that as a Disney shareholder. So, so uh, <laughs> Ryan, I'll go to you. Is there something happening in your industry that people either aren't talking about, or maybe they're taking the wrong angle on? Have you heard? Certainly AI, again, buzzword bingo, you now have your full B-I-N-G, at least in this conversation today, is freaking people out. Uh, there is the the dialogue that overnight humans are sort of Terminator style going to be overtaken by Skynet and the trader economy. There's going to be tons of garbage content created by bots that look like, sound like, feel like uh, a human being. And that may actually happen. I'm, I'm not saying that it won't. What we don't know is whether or not consumers will A, be able to detect the difference. At some point down the road, they probably will not. And at that point, if they cannot detect the difference, do they prefer that content more or the same or less than they do from real human beings? So those are the two big unknowns. But in the, in the meantime, I think at the heart of the issue, the augmentation of real life creators through generative means is something that we have been not only advocating for, we've leaned heavily into because there are practical uses of artificial intelligence today that can make real live human being creators' lives easier. And it can also make the relationships they form with real breathing brands better. And so we, we recently released a set of tools called Form AI that help address that. You know, if you're trying to figure out what a hashtag cloud should be on an Instagram post or how to make sure that, uh, you know, certain brand imagery is replicated well, or, you know, in a future state, not too far down the road, if a brand doesn't want to pay to have you go to location X to do a physical photo or video shoot, there are lots of generative technologies that not too far into the future will be able to insert you into those scenes and not have it look like a Photoshop job done wrong. And the rights that will come of that, the price points that will come of that, and the variety of those things, I think just creates more opportunities for creators and brands alike. Isn't as scary as Skynet, even though T2 is one of my favorite films. Thank you, James Cameron, for that gift. We're joined today by Ryan Schramm. Ryan is the president and chief operating officer and board member at Isaiah, a leader in the influencer marketing space. Ryan, thanks for joining us today and for all your wisdom. Guys, thanks for having me. It was great to be here.